You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. On this episode, we are going to hear from Don the Dragon Wilson. I was recently offered an interview with Mr. Wilson, and I said, well, duh, yeah, I'd love to talk to this guy. So I am hoping that you have as much fun listening to this as I had speaking with Mr. Wilson. Please enjoy. How did you get involved in the world of kickboxing, and what was that world like when you first entered into it? Kickboxing's been around a long time, possibly longer than boxing. It's just America. It didn't hit here into, uh, uh, as a full-blown sport until 1974. And since I started martial arts in 72, I was kind of a beginner. I believe my first fight, I was actually a brown belt, and I had a, what they called in those days full-contact karate. Because uh, we didn't call ourselves kickboxers because we were not in a boxing ring. We did not wear boxing gloves. It, it, it was slightly different than what it evolved to. It's like the UFC started off as an eight-man tournament. Anything goes, no weight divisions, no no gloves at all, no protective equipment. And then at, the UFC has become a, a regular MMA sport with time limits and weight limits and, uh, you know, all, all the regulations that boxing has, they now have in MMA. Well, that's the way kickboxing went. It started off, my first fight was in 74. It was right after they had the first fights in California. And uh, my brother was a promoter, and I got involved in it because he wanted to promote the first fight in the state of Florida. And uh, I was one of the fighters that fought then. It was 1974. We fought on a concrete floor, if you can believe that. If anybody had been knocked out, they would have been dead because they would have fallen. I'm six feet tall. When you fall six feet, your head is like a kind of like a pumpkin. Now, take, take a pumpkin and drop it on concrete six feet and see what that pumpkin looks like. You know, so luckily nobody got knocked out. But yeah, my first fight was very primitive and and dangerous and no athletic commission sanctioned it and there was no ring. We just put tape on the floor and fought on a concrete floor. And I don't know. It was, um, not, I wouldn't call it a sport. I'd call it more of a spectacle. Well, when did it mature into kickboxing? And, and I'm curious, when did that term come about? It actually, uh, it took some time. It was actually, I think, a couple of years into it where they realized we needed to get in rings because people, it would stop the fighting. If somebody got kicked and they went flew, flew off the mat, it, they could actually go out into the, the stands, I imagine. Some guys did. I never got kicked off. But you could kick guys off the mat, and they'd go right into the audience. So anyway, we we realized we've got to put the ropes up there. So they just used boxing rings. And then they figured, you know, everybody's getting their hands broken wearing these, uh, what they call safety chop. They were made out of foam. So we went to, as a sport, the, the martial artists went to boxing gloves because they've been used for many years. And then we decided, you know, to make it a real sport, you've got to have weight divisions, and you've got to have you know, top 10 fighters and world titles. And and it just kind of started slowly. I'd say within two to three years, it was becoming a regular sport. And then soon after that, the athletic commissions got involved. And then, then it was legit, just like the UFC. You know, when the athletic commissions get involved, they know how to run it like a safe sport, you know, the fight game. And whether it's, uh, you know, MMA is mixed martial arts. You're mixing grappling with striking. Now, what I did was just the striking. There was no grappling. We didn't grab and go on the ground and, and try to choke each other. We just tried to knock each other out with our feet and our hands. And uh, so basically, UFC is just kickboxing with additional submission allowed. And, um, you know, and then kickboxing is basically boxing, but they add the kicks. But they have weight divisions, and what I'm saying is we fight in rounds. And uh, while, while there was some differences, since it took more energy to throw a kick... Uh, we made our rounds shorter. 
they were two-minute rounds, whereas the boxers fight three-minute rounds. But, you know, they're on their feet. They're just throwing jabs and crosses and hooks. And, so they're not lifting their leg up, which is a lot of weight. <laughs> it takes a lot more energy to throw, let's say, 20 kicks as it does to throw 20 punches. So the fighters could actually fight 12 rounds. They were shortened to two-minute rounds. We fought two-minute rounds, and the boxers fight three-minute rounds. And uh, the UFC, I believe they do, gosh, you know, I think they do five-minute rounds. I'm not probably, maybe even 15. I'm not even sure because, you know, I never fought in the UFC. <laughs> and, and, and people always, always assume that I watch every boxing match, every kickboxing match, and every UFC fight. And I don't. I, I'm not a fight fan. I am, I will go support a fight if a friend is fighting or someone I know. Or they pay me. Sometimes they just pay me to go to Russia or you know Germany or whatever just to sit in the audience and wave at everybody and watch it. Well, I'll do it that way as a business. But in general, I learned something about myself as an athlete after I retired. I am a selfish athlete. I only watch to improve my own game. That's why I, wa I watched every boxing match, every UFC fight, every kickboxing match when I was a competitor. But as soon as I retired, then I had no practical reason to watch and study all the latest techniques and, and combinations and all the matchups with the fighters and styles and things. I mean, all the business of the fight game kind of lost interest to me once I was retired. When I was no longer doing it, I didn't have much interest in it. You talked about some of the injuries that were happening back then. What has been your worst injury that you've sustained? Okay, the most dangerous? Now, now the worst, of course, is all the brain damage. I mean, I tell people conservatively, in 28 years, I've probably been hit in the head 10,000 times. Look, I was in Toronto, and I was doing a movie, and they forgot to give me the physical, and, a, and an actor had just died in, in Canada. I, I don't know, one of the, those comedians, one of the big, Jim Farley. He had just died, and so they rushed me to the hospital, and they said, oh, I give this guy a physical so that they, the insurance uh, will accept him. And so I go in there, and I tell the guy, well, I'm a former fighter. And so they do a CAT scan. And my brain scan is so unusual. The doctor immediately got on the phone. He called about three or four other guys, and they're pointing at everything in my – and obviously they had never seen a CAT scan that looked like mine. But, I mean, they said but, – but, and, and I was in the room, but they were acting like I wasn't even there. And I said, hey, am I going to be all right? He said, oh, yeah, Mr. Wilson, you're, you're fine for the movie. You're fine for the movie. I'm fine for a movie, but they just had never seen something like that. They just wanted to look at it and say, hey, look how different this looks than the average scan, you know, but, but that, that's, that's a normal thing. I mean, there's no way I could be, my brain can look exactly like it did after 28 years of fighting. Although people say to me, they go, oh gosh, you know, you, you, you seemed like completely normal. I said, yeah, but you didn't know me when I was 18. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I was an engineering major for one thing. I was on the Dean's list. I was an honor student. I was a straight, you know, I mean, I was following in my dad's footsteps. He was a NASA engineer and I was going to be working at NASA, which back in those days, it was the premier place to to work, you know, uh, it was you know when the Kennedy had the, um, the the national goal was to beat the Russians in outer space, and my dad worked at NASA during those time that time. So that's why I was in Florida, and I was going to follow his footsteps. And I made a little segue into kickboxing, and I told my father I'm going to take a couple of semesters out of school to do this kickboxing, and then I'm going to come back and finish my degree and, and become an engineer. Well, 28 years later, I was still kickboxing. That was a little bit of a break. I don't know if there is noticeable difference because there's brain damage. There's no doubt I've got it. But w would it be no noticeable? Like if I had never had a single fight, never sparred one time and gotten hit in the gym, would, would I be – am I the same person as I was back in 74 when I first started? I can't answer that. I mean I, I would not be a good judge of that.
we're the last to know the actual person suffering the damage. But uh, but that would be the worst damage. That's that's actually the worst damage of all the fight game because everything else heals to a degree. I mean, you know, if people hurt their knees and you break your hand, I broke my hands over ten times. I mean, dislocate your thumbs and you know, there's a lot of damage that's done to you. Broke ribs. Um, oh, what one injury that's bizarre, but because boxers never have this, is I had my esophagus ruptured with a knee. The guy hit me in the chest with a knee. And, um, yeah, it collapsed in my chest, put so much pressure, and I held my breath, right, that it blew a hole out of my esophagus. and literally tore a hole in my esophagus. The doctors were worried about infection. That was their concern. So I was in intensive care and being fed intravenously and being observed and watched. And, you know, what they would do is they'd have me go into this big machine and drink this real chalky white kind of fluid, and then they would watch the fluid go out the hole. And then when I could drink it, and it went straight down into my stomach, then they knew the hole was closed. <laughs> I mean, there was, there's no, they, they didn't operate, sew it up or anything. It was a, yeah, now that's a bizarre thing. And, 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 you know, I can't even imagine. Here's what I did, though. Here's the bizarre thing I did, which is bad. I was really thirsty right after I got out of the ring, but I knew something was wrong. You know, my voice didn't sound the same, and, and I, I had this real sharp pains in my neck and in my chest, and I, I knew I had to go to the hospital, the emergency room. But I was thirsty, so I asked somebody to get me a Coke, and I drank a Coke. And what that Coke did was it came out that hole, and if you can imagine, Coca-Cola went into my body cavity. It actually it actually went around my heart. Yeah, I forgot to mention that because the doctor said there, there was like a – it's like, it's like a gas. It's carbonated, right, these Cokes. And so it caused some kind of bubbling gas effect around my heart. And they yeah, and they didn't know what – I mean, can you imagine a Coke into, poured into your body? You know? Yeah, well, that's what I did to myself. I shouldn't have uh, – so if you ever get hit with a knee in the chest, like, don't drink a Coke afterwards. So that's a bizarre injury, and that, that I consider that dangerous because they did keep me in intensive care. And if had it gotten infected, that would have been not a good thing. How did you make that transition? Or it seems like it was kind of a, a gradual transition, but how did you make your way into movies? Uh, that, I can give credit to Chuck Norris. In the 70s, like, I guess it was 78, we met at one of my fights, became instant friends because, you know, I mean, the guy called me up to his hotel room, and we talked for hours. And, you know, I mean, he's a real martial artist. He was a fighter himself and he's he's not just an actor. He's a one of the he was one of the top martial artists of his day in the sixties. Uh, I think he retired in seventy two. So he's a real martial artist. He's not a movie one. Uh he's not like Keanu Reeves, you know, he does enough martial arts to fake it in the movies. Chuck is a former champion and a great martial artist and, and we both hit it off. And he was the one who said to me, at the time he was doing movies for a company called Canon Films. And he said, Don, you know, he said, I, I, Bruce Lee put me in a movie and I got some exposure and I, I tried to build my own career and now I've got a good second career. He said, you should try to do it when you retire. So come come out to L.A., get an agent, take acting lessons and, and try to be an actor. And it was on Chuck Norris's advice that in 84, after my fight in 84, I took the money I made, which was 15000 which in 1984, that, that's a nice chunk of change compared to today. But I moved out to L.A., in 85 with that money from that fight and try to be an actor. And after, I guess, 10 months of no work and nobody, I was a six foot tall Asian with a Southern accent <laughs> with no acting experience. And, um, yeah, so, so they weren't, they weren't, um, you know, uh, lining up to, to star me in movies. And what ended up happening was I ran out of money and I thought, man, you know, I got, a, I, I get a fight offer in two weeks 
if I want to take a fight, I can fight a 10-round fight in Montreal for 10 grand. And I called up Bill Slayton, who uh, his school was in Watts. He used to train Ken Norton, a boxing trainer. I said, can you get me in shape in two weeks? And he goes, absolutely not. He goes, but come in here. We'll do the best we can. So I go in there. We work out for two weeks. I go to the fight, go to Montreal, and I end up knocking the guy out in the third round. And the trainer said, you know, Don, you, you, I know you're, trying, you're out in L.A. be an actor, but he said, but you can still make money. He said, you can make money this way and still do the acting thing. So that's what I did. I came out of retirement after 11 months of not training or fighting because I realized you don't have to give up your act, athletic career to become an actor. You can do both. There's plenty of time, you know. And so um, I did that uh, I, until uh, 1990. And then I was making so much money as an actor that the kickboxing had become a when, – when you take time off to train for a fight, I could have done a movie. So I was losing money every time I fought. And when you're losing money, it's no longer a career. It's a hobby, right? I mean, if you do something and, it, and it, you lose money to do, like if it's mountain climbing, you have to take time off work or whatever, invest money for the equipment and airfare to get to the, to the mountain. and all. When something costs you money, it's not your career anymore. It's a, it's a hobby. And that's what it had become. Uh, by 1990, I was making so much money as an actor that um, you know I retired again. And it wasn't until 99 that Viewer's Choice called me up. And they, they had never put kickboxing on. You know, they did, uh, they were the biggest pay-per-view in the world. They did Tyson's Fight with Holofield. They, all the, the, the big shows. Well, I was going to be, and I am, I'm the first and only kickboxer to have fought on Viewer's Choice. And uh, I came out of retirement because of that. And I fought three more fights, a one-all three, and then I retired again. So now I have retired three times in my career. The sad part about it is I'll fight tonight in the parking lot if somebody's got cash. I'm a, I'm a mercenary. All fighters fight until you quit offering them money. You talk about training for your fights. How did you train yourself for the roles and for the acting? Um, I went to acting school, believe it or not. I mean, I, I, hopefully it shows a little bit when I'm, I mean, uh, you know, I didn't just get in front of a lens. I mean, I enrolled in acting classes and I took, you know, I found out the similarities of acting it's kind of like martial arts. Like you've got to get acting instructors, but there's certain styles of acting. And I, and I took, uh, I started off with uh, the Sanford Meisner school, Playhouse West, which it turns out now that I've been in business 30 years was, is one of the best and was perfect for me. It was the perfect acting class for me at that time. And uh, later on, I got, I went to the Charles Conrad studio in the Valley and, and I went to, um, uh, sort of like Tracy Roberts studio in Beverly Hills. And, uh, actually, uh, Roger Corman suggested I go there because she's got a, she, she at the time had a very, very practical class that they put you right on camera and, 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 you know, it's not to act in theaters, you know, theater acting is not what we do in the films. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a different, um, type of, uh, uh, acting. Um, but, um, yeah, I learned, how to act by being in front of the camera and working with real actors and having directors direct me, uh, you know, to, to improve my performance. You know, now I've been doing it for 30 years and I, and, um, I, I have to admit, I, I feel very comfortable now on a set. You know, it's like about being a kickboxer. I, I, after 28 years, I was really comfortable in that ring. You know, as soon as I get in the ring, I feel actually better than I do when I'm just walking around in the streets. I think the first time I remember seeing you on screen was in Say Anything. And just that line that Cusack just keeps using of kickboxing. Sport of the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a sport of the future. It was very popular. You know, it just, it got usurped by uh, MMA because MMA was a new thing and it was exciting. But there's still kickboxing all over the world, just like there's still boxing. 
You know, I mean, all the sports still exist. I mean, just because people watch basketball doesn't mean they want to take the NFL and throw them out the door, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're fans for, for everything. If you like to watch people fight, you like to watch boxing, you like to watch kickboxing, you like to watch MMA. Um, it's just um, different versions of the same kind of sport. They still have a lot of kickboxing all over the world. And, and the odd thing is when it starts in a new area, it's like the hottest thing around. Like in South America, I hear uh, kickboxing is very popular right now. And in South America is where all the jiu-jitsu started. You know, that's where they popularized Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and they like the grappling arts. But now that they've seen kickboxing, they've really, um, there's like a resurgence of kickboxing in South America. What was it like when you got cast as the lead in Blood Fist? Everybody's got their Hollywood story of how they broke in. They've got their first starring role. You know, their breakthrough film. Here's how mine came, because I've got a weird one. I came home and I hit my answering machine and it said, uh... Hello, my name is Roger Corman. If you're the Don Wilson, the, kick, the kickboxer, we'd like for you to come in and read for the lead of a film called Blood Fist. And uh, his offices were in Brentwood, and that's where they gave me the address. I lived in Beverly Hills at the time, which we called the ghettos of Beverly Hills because I lived in an apartment. You know, you, you when you say you live in Beverly Hills and you have a house, then you've got some money because <laughs> the dirt costs a lot of money there. But I'm, I, I had an apartment in Beverly Hills, and um, so it was a very close ride for me, and I... I they, they, and you know, there's no internet back then. You know, they, they just fax me the sides and I study them and I, and I go in and when the casting director looked at me, he said, um, oh, uh, Mr. Wilson, we didn't know you were Asian. We knew you would either be black, black or, or, or white, but we didn't know you were Asian. This is for a Caucasian lead and the brother's already been cast and he's white. So he said, you know what, Don, I don't want you to waste your time. Come in anyway and read. Maybe you'd be one of the bad guys. So I came in. And I read one time for the casting director, and he looked at me and he said, I'll be right back. And he goes out of the room, and he comes back in just a couple of minutes later, and he says, uh, uh, Don, Roger Corman wants to meet you. So I said, okay. So I go into the office, Roger's office, which he still has the same office in the same place in Brentwood. But um, anyway, I go in there. This is 1988. And he says, and I didn't know who he was, thank God, because had I known, I would have froze right up. Because this is a guy who could make or break anybody's career. I mean, he started Nicholson out. He started De Niro, Scorsese, Ron Howard, James Cameron. He gave everybody who's A-list their first start in the business. But I didn't know that. Thank goodness I didn't because I was not nervous. He was just some nice, friendly, older gentleman sitting on a couch. So he said, tell me about yourself. And I told him I was a kickboxer and that I moved out to L.A. from Florida because Chuck Norris, on his advice, he thought I could be an actor. I should try it. So he said, okay, would you read for me? And so I said, yeah. So the casting director does the, he's playing the bad guy. So I did, I read a couple of lines and, and I mean, I know the scene now, but I haven't seen, you know, I shot that movie in 1988. So I, I vaguely remember the lines, but it was the climactic, it was the end of the movie when I realized that my trainer killed my brother. And that's why I like, if you saw the movie, I, I go to the Philippines to get the guy who killed my brother. So anyway, anyway, it was the, that climactic scene. And I realize now that why Roger cast me, because he actually stopped me after I got into maybe three or four lines. And normally, if you get stopped in the middle of the read, it's because they don't want to waste any more time with you. They want you out that door. Don't let the door hit you in, the, in your butt on your way out. It's usually not a good sign when they stop you in the middle of it. But he stopped me in the middle of it because Roger had made his mind up. He had seen enough. So for him, uh, I was the right guy for the, the movie. Um, and, and here's this, the thing. Uh, uh, the reason why it works like this is 
I did the very first thing they taught in acting class, the one that I was going to, the Sanford Miser. They said, if you don't know how to play something as your character or how, just do a what if, what if it was you? What if it was your brother and you look at this guy, this guy you just realized killed your own, your brother. Just do a substitution thing and do the, and get into that moment. And you know what? I think that's what happened. It, in front of Roger at that moment, I I forgot I was auditioning, forgot it was a movie, that it was a script, and I got into the character. And so for for 30 seconds, he saw enough. That he, actually, before I left his office, he said, Don, you're going to do this martial art movie, and you're going to do many others. He goes, you're going to go to action movies? And he said, much, much later in your life, you're going to be a famous dramatic actor, a successful dramatic actor all over the world. And he shook my hand. He said, here's a script. You leave in two weeks. And I ended up doing 12 movies with him. And um, I remember once me and David Carradine were signing autographs together. And David, it's the only time he looked with me with respect. He, he said, Don, you know, I've done more movies than anybody for Roger. I uh, started more. And I said, really, David, how many have you done? And he said, I've done eight. And I looked at David. I said, David, I've done 12. And Roger offers me a new one every year. And he he laughed and he looked at me. And he, it's the only time I saw him. He, he goes, really? He says, I thought I was the one. He said, you are the one that has worked uh, more with Roger Corman than any other actor. Any other star, you know, starred in the movies. You know, as character actors, you could probably do a hundred Corman films. But um, as the star, yeah, I, 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 to this day, you know, this, I'm certain I, I hold the record for Roger. You know, we really became very close. And he, and he, I can just tell you, he's just a great guy. You know, we, I, you know, when you've known somebody for 30 years and you have not a bad word to say about him, that's pretty darn good in this town. What have been some of your favorite roles to do over the years? You know, I like Red Sun Rising because I felt that character was very similar to me. Uh, he, he's a Japanese cop. He was an HBO world premiere. And my manager at the time produced the film. We worked on it together, the script and everything, the casting. Yeah, it was one of my best. And I, and I think it was uh, very well received. The ratings were very high for it. I think it was the fourth highest rated show on cable that uh, week that it opened. It was called Red Sun Rising. And uh, Michael Ironside was in it, Terry Farrell, Edward Albert. No, no, had a really good cast, very good director, done in the early 90s, and uh, yeah, I think that was probably, if I could say, you know, the character that I was most closest to and enjoyed playing. Well, his name was Thomas Hoshino, and Hoshino is my uncle's name. It's actually my mother's name. name, Her name's Toshi Hoshino. So it's, you know, it's not just my uncle's name, it's my 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 mother's family name. One movie that you were in that has a rather bad reputation, sometimes I think it's deserved, sometimes I don't think it is, is Batman Forever. What was that like to work on? I get a phone call from my agent. He's very excited. He says, Don, um, uh, Joel Schumacher wants you to come to his office and meet with him about um, working in Batman Forever. I said, oh, great, great. great. You know, I, I didn't know who Joel, Joel Schumacher was at the time. I think he this was his breakout cell, really. I mean, I think he had done something like either St. Elmo's Fire or he did a vampire one, I think. Anyway, he, he was studio guy, but he was not... I mean, this was the big tentpole movie of the year, by the way. Highest grossing movie was Batman Forever. But anyway, so I didn't really know him. So I, I go to his office. He goes, Don, I, I, I want to bring martial arts, and I want to have martial arts throughout Batman Forever. So I want you to work with Tommy Lee Jones for three and a half months. You, I'll need you. And um, you, we're going to have martial arts in all these action sequences. And I said, Joel, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I've got these contracts that I've already signed. I used to sign six movies in advance. Yeah, I would sign, you know, because um, I, I, I've i released in one one year five films in 13 months. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Entertainment Weekly said to their knowledge in American film that, that that doesn't happen. 
You don't do five films in the same genre if you're the star of it. You might appear as a character actor in a bunch of films, but not five of the exact same films. Joe said, well, what can you do? I said, well, I'll tell you, Joe, I can do one fight scene. If, you know, I'll come in, shoot the fight scene. I said, but um, I'd like to be disguised in those because I'm trying to be an action star. And I don't want to, I know it's not Batman, Robin, and the Dragon. <laughs> you know, I know I'm going to get beat up. So, and he, he thanked me for coming in and, and said he didn't have anything, but he thanked me, shook my hand. And I, I don't, you know, I wish I remembered exactly how many days went by, but, but some days went by, maybe a week. My agent calls and says, Don, Joe wants to see you again. I said, really? Uh, and so I drive to Warner Brothers, and, um, you know, these guys don't leave messages that tell you what's going on. They just say, come in, I'd like to talk to you. There, there's no, there's no, nobody hires somebody to star in a movie by phone. I'm positive of it in Hollywood. They, usually it probably happens in a bar somewhere, and they've had two drinks, and, he says, and then they stick their hands out and shake, and say, all right, man, we're going to make this movie together. But anyway, it, it is show business, not normal business. So anyway, I go to see Joel, and he's got in his hand two sheets of paper, and they're numbered. And, you know, because they treated the script to Batman Forever like a CIA document. You know what I mean? They, nobody would – like, I was not going to see any pages that I didn't have to see. It's like need-to-know basis. So the two sheets of paper he had was there's this gang, and Robin drives up in the Batmobile, and one of the gang leader is messing with this girl. And Anyway, it was a scene I did, and what what, what it was is – it was this neon gang when they were all disguised up. So I had the skull face. I was the guy with the skull face. And, and then um, uh, it's just, it, it's, it, you know, a very short scene. It took four days to shoot it, though, but it was a very short scene. But Joel did get me in it, and I appreciated it. And, you know, um, uh, I, I hope he was happy with what I did. And, um, yeah, that, right after that, I got a phone call from uh, Joel Silver, who was doing a film in Richard Donner. And they asked me to come in and do an action, a scene with Antonio Banderas. And um, uh, I, I basically turned it down, which was a big mistake. I realize that now. But, but at, those, at that time, I thought, well, gosh, you know, I did a cameo in Batman, but I don't want to just get beat up by everybody because I was going to get killed by Antonio Banderas in a movie. The movie ended up, it was called Assassins with Stallone, was the lead in it. And uh, anyway, they, they, were, they had this scene where I was with... Um, an A-list actress. I, we're doing a business deal, but Antonio Banderas thinks I've been hired to kill him, so he tries to kill me, and he ends up shooting me, and that was the scene. And I turned it down. I didn't realize this, but Richard Donner. See, Hollywood is about relationships. It's not how much money you get. It's not even how great your role is. It's relationships. Richard Donner's next movie was The Lethal Weapon. He wanted to bring more martial arts into it, and he went and he got brought Jet Li in. Well, you know what? Maybe... If I would have kissed his rear end a little bit, if I, well, not even that. If I would have just, just did the movie with him, right, and, and tried to help him with Assassin, did a great job, it would have been me fighting Mel Gibson instead of Jet Li. And now, here's another thing. When I heard Joel Silver was producing a sci-fi martial art movie, of course I called my agent and said, hey, look, it's in development, but if they ever do make it, I'd like to do any kind of bit parts in it. So my agent calls up quote Joel's people and they say oh yes we love Don we love his work we're definitely going to have a lot of martial arts in this movie and, and we'll, we'll get in touch with you and Don as soon as we're you know in development we've got more more definite uh, characters and script is, is more solidified or whatever which is basically the Hollywood rigmarole well because nobody says no to anybody they just say oh yeah we'd love to we'd love to and then you just never hear from them which is what happened well that movie turned out to be The Matrix now, did you see me in The Matrix? I don't remember you in The Matrix. Well, you didn't see me in The Matrix because I said no to Joel Silver when he asked me to be in Assassins. And you know what? You get 
you don't get more than one shot at something. I, I mean, nobody has repeated something, um, at least in, in, in Hollywood for me. You get an offer, and if you say no, that specific person that you said no to, you never get another phone call from them. And I, I don't know if that, I, I don't know if it's just in general that happens. Or if it's the law out here, like it's against the law for you know, Joe Silver to ever work with me because he, he asked me to do something and I said no. I've had some big opportunities since then, too. As many right turns as I've had and as many breaks as I've had in this business, I've had the big bombshell negative things happen to me, too. I, I'll tell you one that's pro- not common knowledge, but I mean, there's, this is not, no secret. I had my own TV series, Greenlit, to be shot in New York City. Me and Dean Kane are going to be brothers. And it was going to be, uh, the showrunner was John Fusco. He's the guy who wrote Young Guns and, um, see, what else did he write? He wrote a series for Showtime and he, he wrote a movie for Jackie Chan. I think it was called Forbidden Kingdom. But anyway, uh, his name is John Fusco. He's the showrunner at Chrysler Corporation prepaid for 13 episodes. They were going to just buy the 13 episodes and the only ads were going to be theirs. That's the way they were going to do it. And and it was already, in other words, I'm guaranteed, regardless of Nielsen ratings, 13 episodes. So, as and, and me and Dean Kaner play brothers and we're, and we're the leads. Well, that's all green. And the William Morris Agency packaged it, so they called me up and said, Don, break open a bottle of Don Perry, or Perrion, you and your wife, celebrate. Uh, your series is greenlit. It's going to go in whatever month or so he'd get told me. And I said, oh, great. So then Ben Laden blows up the World Trade Center. Chrysler can't even give a car away. They pull out all their financing. The show's killed. Now, I like to complain about it, but you know what? People jumped out of buildings that day, so I can't complain much, right? I mean, I lost a TV, TV series through no fault of my own, and I mean a guaranteed TV series, you know, already pre-bought by Chrysler. I made mistakes by, by not appearing in Assassin's. Now, I did make mistakes with 9-11. Now, I mean, I couldn't control that, but I mean, things outside your realm of control can either make or break a career. I mean, what would have happened if Chuck never did Walker, Texas Ranger? You know, I mean, because, you know, that was the big success of, of Chuck. You know, he did do some B movies for Canon Films. I mean, I think he starred in at least 17 or 18 movies and maybe more. You know, they were never studio blockbusters. You know, he never had a career like Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Bruce Willis. Chuck, if you look at Canon Films, it was a small independent company. A couple of Israeli guys, I think, owned it. But, um, you know, Chuck, while he's famous... And, and, and is well known and well respected as an entertainer, you know, in his inter- entertainment business. Um, he never did the big blockbusters. He never had like a movie that grossed a hundred million. Yeah. If he had not had the TV series, because that's where his big success was. I mean, that was the number one show for eight years, number one action show in the world for eight years. You know, it, it was kind of like the Baywatch of action. You know, you know, Baywatch was the number one show because it was sold all over the world for a number of years. I don't really know how long it, it lasted, but I, I know it was a, Huge hit. Chuck's was too. You know, it was uh, twice, I believe, he got on the cover of Hollywood Reporter for being the breaking the top ten of all shows in America, and that's on Saturday night at ten o'clock, horrible time slot, and he broke into the top ten. So basically, you know, his feeling was this, though, is what he told me is, he said, you know what, the network executives don't understand is at any time in this country there are ten million martial artists taking martial art lessons and or haven't taken them in the last couple of years. And he said they're actual martial artists. He said they will all tune in and watch Walker, Texas Ranger every week. And so he averaged 10 million viewers a week. 
You know, Friends was getting like 22 million or 20. It was the number one show, double with Walker. But I mean, they had a great time slot, you know, and they had big studio money behind them. I think, I'm trying to remember, I think each actor got a, a million each each week. So that's $6 million a week before they turned the cameras on. You know, I mean, that, that, it was it was an expensive show, in other words. Walker was uh, a, a lot cheaper. I, I did one episode. Chuck called me up and he said, Don, I'm wrapping up the show. I'm going to shoot a couple more episodes. I'd like for you to, to do one of the episodes before we finish. And I said, oh, great, Chuck. I said, um, send me the script. And, I, and he goes, he laughs. He says, Don, you don't need the script. You're playing Don the Dragon Wilson. I'll just tell you what to say when you get here. And I said, okay, no problem. And that's what I did. I played Don the Dragon Wilson on Walker, Texas Ranger, one of the last episodes. But he's a great guy. And that, that, it was an idea of Chuck Norris's. And then it was... I was discovered, if you want to use that term, because I think it could be used, because I'd never really done anything in the movie business, and then I started a movie, and I did 12 movies for one guy, Roger Corman, and if you can't build a career after starring in 12 movies, then you, whatever it is, you don't have it. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you don't have, because people have to spend 90 minutes of your life, of their, excuse me, 90 minutes of their lives with you. And so I, I don't know what it is. Nobody does. You know, why, why would people get, because it's not, it's not that I'm a, this great actor. I'm, I'm no, it's not the acting. I, I can go to any acting class here in Hollywood and find people that just blow me right out the door as an actor. But people don't watch their movies, wouldn't watch their movies or wouldn't watch them if they were on TV or wouldn't, you know, it's just, I'm not really sure uh, why people uh, will watch one person and not another. You know, I, I think if we could, you and I could figure out what it what it is and put it in a paragraph, we could sell that for $10,000 a person out here in Hollywood. Casting directors would want to know what the it is that actors have to have to for audiences to spend 90 minutes of their lives watching them. Uh, we could sell it to directors. We could sell it to the studios. We could, you know, if we knew the answer of why one person will be successful and one will not. So far, nobody's figured it out. No, nobody, you know. <laughs> Chuck is is pretty synonymous with Canon uh, Group. He was. He was. Yeah, he was exclusive at that time. Yeah. When I think of you, I tend to think of PM Entertainment. Well, I did six movies with them. You know, it's PM, which means Pepin and Merhi. Pepin was the a DP, and Joseph Merhi was a director. So when they started the company, they said, "Hey, what are we going to call the company?" They said, "PM." Pepin and Merhi. Yeah, so it was a deep a director of photography and a director formed their own company and started making these ultra ultra low budget video movies. And uh, they were usually they had a little sex and they I, I can tell you the two stars they had before they worked with me. One of them was Eric Estrada. The other one was Dan Haggerty. If you remember him, he was Grizzly Adams, I think, or something. They were not very successful. Uh, it was not a big company. But they came to me and they said they wanted to do a martial art movie. They showed me the script. And it basically what they did is they took Romeo and Juliet, the idea, or, or you could say West Side Story, and they kind of made a little martial art film uh, similar to it, the, the story structure. And uh, it was called Ring of Fire. And I looked at that and I said, you know, for me, I've only got one fight scene, but I can show, you know, that I can maybe be a romantic lead in this thing. I mean, it's, it's like a love story for me. That's why I took the movie. Now, that movie ended up making them a lot of money. And I ended up doing six more movies with them. And uh, they would be making movies today except for one thing. They made a mistake. And the mistake was they decided at a certain point in their career that they were going to make a Van Damme movie. And I believe they went up to, they spent $30 million on it. 
And when their average movie it was way under a million, you know, they 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 wouldn't shoot a movie in eighteen days, and it'd be you know maybe a I don't know six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollar movie. Well, the Van Damme movie is thirty million, and it went it was. It was bad. It, it was, it, it, people didn't like it. It could not get theatrical release. It went right to, to video and uh, bankrupt the company, basically. I don't know if you know what happened to Canon. It was not Chuck that broke. Canon made Chuck's movies, Michael Dudikoff, Shogasugi. They made a lot of low-budget martial arts action films, and they built the company up, and they went public. They raised, I believe, $60 million. And then they decided they were going to do studio-style films, and they went, and the big actor that they got was Stallone. And they gave him, I believe, at that time, $6 million, which is unheard of for an actor. And they did an arm wrestling movie called Over the Top. And it bombed. And and it was like they, they, they did several movies during that time. They did other – it wasn't just the, van, uh, the um, Stallone movie, but they did several other movies. And they all, one after another, bombed. And the company went under. Cannon went bankrupt. And um, Chuck, though, rather than just start looking for – other companies to work for, he made the move, which was a great idea, to TV. And um, then, you know, him and his brother produced uh, Walker. He wasn't just an actor, you know, he, he was the producer of it. So, um, yeah, he, he made the right decision at the right time. Like we people say, timing is everything. I mean, hard work is necessary and talent is necessary, but timing, got to have that. Chuck made the right move at the right time. And, um, yeah, so he stayed successful. And as far as me, I, I, you know, look, every penny I've made as an actor to me is a, is a gift because I never started anything. Martial arts, uh, in my life, I never dreamed of being an actor. I mean, I was a kid from Cocoa Beach, Florida. You know, I was a surfer, basically. I played basketball, football, ran track. I wrestled in college. I, I was an athlete, but I never imagined memorizing dialogue and appearing in movies. I, ne- I never thought I'd be in theaters and, and on Showtime and HBO. and cinema. I never thought I'd be... An actor, um, never had any aspirations. It, it was, I, I was a grown man. I was in my late 20s before anybody even mentioned it. And like I said, it was Chuck Norris. And it was uh, still not something I, I 100% knew was going to work for me. Uh, I just came out to LA to try it. And um, I will say this, though. I've talked to many people around the country. And they say, oh, I always wanted to be an actor. Oh, I always wanted to be an action star. And I tell them, I said, well, the first thing you have to do is... The, what I did, and they said, what's that? I said, well, you get everything you own, put it in a car, and move out to L.A. And a lot of them, they have karate schools, they have wives, they have children. They're Like, they're too dug in to make that commitment. And um, so I understand that. You know, they, they just can't take the commitment because they'd be putting their whole family at risk. But I was. I was a single guy, and I was retired from fighting, and, um, you know, it was the, the timing was right for me to come out. I also took advantage of the um, video days. See, imagine if there were no video. Like, I was I was a video star. I was not a movie star. I was not a TV star. I was a video star. This is a different kind of celebrity star. It didn't exist before the 80s. Uh, you know, but everybody had the VCRs. And what they used to, the, the term they used to, used to use is there's a video monster, and it has to be fed every week. And by that, they meant you've got, they've got to be pumping out films every week for all these people who are going to the video stores and they would walk around, they would browse in those days. You just walk up and down looking at the new movies. Like when, when somebody would go to a video store, like the average, because I believe me, I was out on the video tours. I mean, for at least 20 films, I would go all across the country promoting them. 
and I'd go to the blockbusters and the, the all the big distributors, and I talked to the, the the store owners and the salespeople, and so I know with the mentality, people come. It's it's Friday night or something. They get, their wives are already planned. It's going to be movie night. They're going to get three movies or two movies, one action one, one comedy or, or one family one, and one uh, hard R rated one or whatever. And anyway, they go and they're browsing. So your box artwork's got to be good. Right, because because they don't know what the, it's got to jump out and hit you. You can't just have the title of the movie, you know. And and, and also here's the two things. Okay, the artwork got to look good, and then they've got to recognize the star on it, because there were so many ultra bad B movies made back in the video days that nobody wanted one that they wasted their two bucks on. I think that's what they went for back then, like two dollars or something. And but if, but I luckily I kept the quality of my movies at the level that people felt it was worth the two bucks. You know, I, I didn't I didn't do what um, a lot of the guys of my day. Now now look, I'm a kickboxer. You're basically talking. You you know me as more of as an actor, but I'm actually a kickboxer. There were millions of kickboxers over the last thirty years. How many other ones have starred in thirty films? I'm the only one. I'm it. I'm the only one to star in 30 films. Now, so what, what is it? You say, oh, well, Don was um, uh, the best actor. No. The the, the best um, kickboxer. No. I mean, I, I'm one of the top ones, but that's not the reason why. No casting director, no, no producer asked me what my fight record is before they hire me. No. I picked the scripts that I felt were the best, and I looked at the work of the directors. I looked at the past projects of the producers I worked with. I said no to 10 times the number of films I said yes to. And like I said, I admit it. I said no to some of the A-list films I should have been in. But, but if, you know, if I could say no to Joel Silver and, and Richard Donner, you know I said no to a lot of B-movie directors and producers because I thought their projects would be bad. And I, even though they dangled more money in front of my face to get me to do them than I was making with the other ones, I knew the other movies were better movies. So I made the conscious effort to say, no, you know what? This director, I've seen his last two movies. The action he shoots is great. This writer wrote, one of the movies I like the best is called Forced to Fight. It's a prison movie I did with Richard Roundtree. The script was just, you could take all the martial arts and take it out, and this movie would be great anyway. It was just a good movie. It wasn't like a movie put together for an excuse for fight scenes. It was a movie dealing with racism. There's a black gang and a white gang, and then an Asian guy thrown right in the middle. Well, I didn't fit with either gang. There was no Asian gang in this movie. So it was all this racial strife going on, and um, they they cast good actors. Once Richard Roundtree signed on, every actor in Hollywood, in town, would not look at the movie in a bad light. In other words, they wouldn't say, oh, this is too poor quality. i got to say, no, i got to pass on this. Richard Roundtree, he hadn't worked in a couple of years because he was waiting for a good script like this one. You know, uh, he, he played Shaft, and I think they gave him a little bit of a kind of a name value. So he didn't want to do inferior work. He wanted to keep his name with good movies. The script was good, and, and I, I think that's what separated me from the other guys. The other kickboxing champions, who I'm not saying uh, they, they couldn't act and their kickboxing wasn't good and their fight scenes didn't look exciting, they probably all did that. But I don't think they were able to pick the right projects. They picked some movies that were really bad. I myself, you know, the guys were my friends. I can't get through their movies. The script is bad. The the, the casting is horrible. You know, you know, you can have maybe one or two subpar actors, but you can't have a whole cast of them. <laughs> and try to get through 90 minutes of movie 
when, when, when it's like it, it's it, it's just bad acting all the way through. Now you just you know I, I don't want to point the finger at anybody in specific, but I'm just saying a lot of the action stars that were working around in the 80s and 90s, the reason their audiences left them, the reason why they're not working today is the choices they made. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm certain they they um, made their choices all in good faith. I mean, they, they they were hoping the movies would be good, but they they either lacked the the wherewithal to to pick the right scripts, or they didn't do their homework and check out the company and the directors to see if their products were high quality or as high look as high quality as the budgets will allow. I mean, none, none of my films are going to look like you know Star Wars. You can do good stuff without money. Um. What was it? Uh, Leaving Las Vegas? That's an ultra low budget movie. That was shot on 16 millimeter. I mean, movies like Swingers. That movie was made for like $300,000. I mean, movies were being made for less than my salary, but they were still great movies because of the writing, the directing, and the performances. The actors' performances. They were, they were still, um, you know, high quality movies. Things like, uh, Dallas Buyers Club, something like that. There's no big explosions, no big shootout. From what I understand, because I read, or I, I think I watched the, uh, the documentary, but I saw how they were making it, and they said they didn't have the lights they needed for a restaurant scene, so they just got all the candle lights, and they framed it so you couldn't see the candles, and they lit one of the scenes. Jennifer Garner was lit by candlelight, and it turned out to be a good thing. They said it gave it a kind of a, a nice look. But I'm saying when, when you got to use the actual candles in a restaurant because you don't have the money for the proper lighting <laughs> you're low budget but but that's one of the, both actors in that movie by the way made got the oscars jared leto and uh matthew mcconaughey so and, and it's a great movie right it's based on reality based on a true story and true characters and it, it, it's a political movie it's a it's a social movie i mean it's it does all the i don't know the, the positive things a movie can do it's like an you can be enlightened I tell people most of my movies are like a roller coaster ride. You start from one place. When the ride is over, you've had all kinds of thrills, but you end up in the exact same place. You you haven't uh, gained much as a human being, but but you could start watching Dead Man Walking, and after seeing all the different ways the death penalty can screw up people's lives and whatever, you could have a different feeling about the death penalty at the end of it. And, and, and in other words, they, they supposedly they didn't try to preach to anybody. They just try to show all the different aspects of it, of the death penalty and somebody going through it. Certainly the guy deserved, I, I mean, well, it depends on, you know, he deserved to die. I, I don't know. But, um, you know, he, he raped and killed two, two young teenage kids. as Sean Penn's character, I'm saying. And, um, yeah, and, and, and but then, then you had this nun that was trying to get him to, 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 uh, you know, ask for forgiveness so that he could go to heaven. And supposedly, that's the way it works. I mean, he supposedly, you know, um, I think she forgave him or, or, or he asked for forgiveness or something. Anyway, what I'm saying is there are artistic movies, the higher art form of films. And of course, mine are not like that. But um, that's the aspiration of some filmmakers. And, and for mine, we're just trying to make a roller coaster ride where people have fun. Uh, I, but I think, you know, in uh, The Martial Art Kid, we do have some messages in that one. You know, about the martial arts and about when to use it and when not to use it and, and how it can help you gain self-confidence. And, and we, we did have some messages, but we covered it, the messages up, I hope, with entertainment. You know, it had some comedy, it had some action, had, you know, good music and beautiful locations. You know, we actually went to Florida 
which was my brother's idea, by the way, because I, I told him, look, at this budget, we never flew to fly the cast and crew to locations. We just fake all that. You just send a, a, a guy with a camera, and he shoots exteriors at all these locations you want to use, and then we should cut the close-ups and we'll fake it here in L.A. It'll save you a couple hundred grand. And my brother said, nope, we're going to fly there. And you know where he got the money? He calls me up and he says, Don, I heard about this thing called Kickstarter. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's something where they give you money to, to make movies and they donate it. And I said, James, I've been in this business for 30 years. Nobody's going to give you money. People will invest money, but they want a profit back. And he said, nobody's going to give you any money. And he said, look, let me use your Facebook page. And I said, go ahead. So I give him my Facebook code. He gets online 30 days later, 30 days. He's got 174000 He asked for 150. And he got 24000 more than he asked for. Because I guess I – you know what I tell people? You know, they call it Facebook friends. Those people are my friends. <laughs> if they're going to give money because, because my brother says, we need the money because we want to shoot on location. Otherwise, we've got to make this movie and it's just not going to look as good. And, you know, we're, we're an independent film and it's a Don Wilson, Cynthia Rothrock movie. So I can't take all the credit because, you know, Cynthia's fans also kicked money in. So, yeah, but we, we actually got 174000 too. And we did. We shot in Florida and L.A. The interiors were done in L.A., a lot of them, you know, all the – in the karate school and all that because the actors live here and it's just it's just cheaper to shoot here. But the exteriors where it would look like a small beach town, uh, that was all done in Cocoa Beach, Florida, right where my brother wanted to shoot and paid for by, quote, my friends on Facebook. The dragon says thank you. In that movie, in The Martial Arts Kid – also in paying uh, Mr. McGetty, one of your other recent films, actually quite a few of your recent films, Showdown in Manila, Beyond the Game, you are working with Cynthia Rothrock. And I know you worked with her, what, early 2000, 2002, 2000? I've known her since the 80s. And my life is a series, a series of unbelievable coincidences. And, you know, uh, you talk to guys like Elon Musk. You know who Elon Musk is, right? I mean, I, I don't, I didn't talk to him, but I'm saying I listened to him. He believes that, and many people, I mean, many people believe that the, we're, we, we are not actually, we're living in a three-dimensional hologram, which is a computer simulation. That's the reality you and I are in. It's more likely it's that than that, that, that we are base reality. And, you know, you have to go online and, and check it out, but it's called the holographic universe or simulated universe and computer simulated universe. And, and so anyway, whoever... This particular one that you and I are both in at the same time because our conscious minds are able to connect with each other. So we're, 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 we're in the same time zone and space, three-dimensional space in this simulated computer world, universe. Somebody's got a sense of, sense of humor. Because let me – they're writing a book about me because it's, it's so unbelievable because so many coincidences. Here, here's one. I'm, walk, I'm living in Beverly Hills. I'm walking down the street. My street was Oakhurst in Beverly Hills. So I'm walking down the street, and a car pulls up next to me. And this is like 1985, I guess. Woman gets out of her car. She goes, Don the Dragon Wilson. I said, Yeah. She goes, It's Cynthia Rothrock. It's I go, Oh, hey, Cynthia. I, you know, I'd only met her a couple of times. I said, Oh, hi. And I said, What are you doing here? She goes, I live on this street. So, so we lived on the same street when I first moved to LA. Now, years later, I'm married, and it's uh, ninety, I guess ninety eight. My wife decides she wants to buy a house. Normally, what I like to do. Because I know how acting is. You can make more money and less money, right? When you're making less money, you just downsize to a townhouse or whatever. If you're making good money, you, you rent basically lease big homes in nice areas. Okay. So my wife says, let's buy someplace. I said, okay. I said, but I don't want to spend a minute looking for a house. You find the house and I'll buy it for you. So she finds a house. We buy the house. It's in Woodland Hills. Now we're taking our kids to a private school and I pull up and 
I see Cynthia at this, in, in the parking lot. And I go, Cynthia, what are you doing here? She goes, oh, I lived, she lived right up my street in Woodland Hills. She was taking her daughter to the same school, private school. Now, what are the odds of that? You know how big LA is. We, I live right off of, of Topanga. I mean, like a block off of Topanga. She lives a block off of Topanga, but just a little bit further south of, 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 the, of, of this ca- ca- canyon road. What are the odds of that? I mean, LA is a big place. And, and Beverly, for leaving leave from Beverly Hills to go to the West Valley. But anyway, strange odds. Now, you asked about Cynthia and I working in films. Well, there's a few agents in Hollywood, correct? There's a few agents out here. We have the same agent. We have the same agent. Now, what are the odds of that? The odds of that are very low. I went with him not because of Cynthia. I didn't even know Cynthia when I signed with him in 85. Didn't really know her. But I, I signed with him because he was Shogasugi's agent. That's why. And I, I saw it. I read a book. You know, uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, when I first came out here, I bought a bunch of books on how to be an actor. And I followed them. And sure enough, it worked. But one of them said, find an agent who's got an actor like you, and he's making money off him. He's making money with him. So I said, well, who's got an actor it's Japanese doing martial art films. Six foot well, Shogasugi is six foot tall doing martial art films for Canon, uh, ninja films, and um, he didn't speak English very well like me though. He he's actually from Japan, so that's that's where we differ. But we both are Japanese and tall and do martial arts. So I went with his agent, and his agent uh, Ray Cavalier is his name, still my agent. He said, Don, you know, Sho gets offered a lot of work that he turns down. Anything he turns down, I'll send you out for. And I said, Great, that sounds great for me. So that's how I got my agent. And so Cynthia and I had the same agent. So really, we should have probably appeared in more movies together in the 80s and 90s. But the reason we didn't is my salary back then was close to a quarter of a million dollars a film. I made 220. They gave 20,000 to my agent, 200 grand to me, and I would do a movie. That's basically what I worked for. Well, they didn't have the money to pay for me and Cynthia. I've never asked her what she got, but I know she was the number two box office star in Southeast Asia in the 80s. So she got something similar to – I mean, Ray's, Ray's the negotiator. He's getting something similar. So you, you think if you get Don Wilson and Cynthia Rothrock and you, you haven't turned the cameras on and you're out $400,000, that's, that's pretty tough for B-movies. You know, they just – they couldn't afford both of us in a movie. So we, while we still had the same agent, we didn't work together. We ended up working together when, you know, the video market died and, and then they started doing like an expendables thing. Instead of having one B-movie star, if you got two or three or four, it, it just helps you sell the movie. The buyers are more likely to buy it. So Cynthia and I have appeared in many films together. Now, I don't know how many, but at least I have a dozen. Because they can afford both of us now. And they, they can't, of course, afford us for the entire films. Like even White Tiger, which has now been renamed to Death Fight, uh, Cynthia only worked like 10 days. I was there for pretty much the whole film, but she did like a play the bad girl, and it's not throughout the whole movie. So that they can afford, uh, but um, uh, that, that but that's a couple of the weird coincidences. I mean, that we, we oh here's the other one. There's a lot of kung fu styles, and I mean a lot. We have black belts in the same kung fu style. We study the same kung fu. It's called Pai Lun. It's White Dragon. It's a very obscure one, but. I've learned mine in Florida from my brother. She learned it in Philadelphia from an instructor up there. So we have black belts in the same – we studied the same martial art. What are the odds of that? That's pretty strange, right? Whoever's programming the computer, he's got a sense of humor. Here, here, let me tell you one thing that is – okay. This is all going to come out in my um, uh, autobiographical book, but which is being written. But I can tell you now. When I used to uh, live in Florida, before I was a professional, full-time professional fighter, I managed a nightclub. Now, that nightclub, we would have live entertainment and disco. So the live entertainment would be rock bands, and the disco would be, you know, Saturday Night Fever type stuff. 
So anyway, we have a rock band in there. There's a big tall guy and a bass player, and he's playing the guitar, blonde-haired guy, and he goes, uh, hey, you know what? He goes, I, love, I like, like this club. I like the area. He said, I live in Tampa, Florida, but I'm thinking about getting out of the band. If I get out of the band, will you hire me as a bartender? I said, sure, absolutely. I said, yeah, I'll try you out. You know, and they, you know, he got friendly with the owner, became friends with the owner, and I said, yeah, I'd love to work with you. So he quits the band. He works for me as a bartender. He works there for I don't know how long, maybe six months or so, and a friend of his comes and says, hey, look, you know, why don't you try championship wrestling? Because he was doing it, and he said, you know, I think you're tall, and you're big, you can get, get, put some muscle on, and you could, you could try this with me. Well, that was Hulk Hogan. Yeah, yeah, Terry is his name, real name is Terry. But, um, yeah, so what are the odds that, and, and listen, by the way, Terry ended up wrestling in Japan for the same guy I used to kickbox for in Japan. I had three fights in Japan. So, so the same guy that hired him to wrestle hired me to kickbox. But what are the odds of this, though? I come out to L.A. and I go, Chuck, uh, Chuck Norris, you know, I, I said, um, I need an entertainment attorney. Who should I go to? He goes, I got a perfect guy. He handles athletes and entertainers. His name is Henry Holmes. So I signed with this entertainment attorney, and as I'm leaving his office, I see a picture of Terry on the wall. I go, what's this doing here? And he goes, oh, it's one of my clients. Because, you, you, you know, there's a million lawyers out here. The odds that were not even knowing that he had Hulk Hogan, that we would have the same entertainment attorney. But it, but anyway, I mean, what are the odds that Terry became the highest paid wrestler, by the way, and I became the highest paid kickboxer, and we both came from the same nightclub in Cocoa Beach, Florida? What are the odds of that? You know, I mean, it's strange. It's astronomical, though, because of all the people that didn't know martial arts and that tried kickboxing all over the world, I, I'm the highest paid, to, even to this day. And Terry, back in the WrestleMania days, at that time, when he was peak of his career, he was the highest paid wrestler. And we both worked in the same nightclub. You know, I mean, it, that yeah, that's that's odd. The reason the book is being written is this. There, there's a producer I worked with who used to be my personal manager, but he became a producer. And he, one of the guys he started the business with was the producer of The Departed. This guy, Paul Masek, who used to be my manager, who now is a producer, was talking to him about the fighter. They were talking about, yeah, you know, it's a boxing thing. It got re really good reviews, and, and the actors were nominated and all. And, and so Paul tells him, well, you know, Don the Dragon Wilson started kickboxing. Kickboxing eventually led to the MMA. So he started professional martial arts in this country. And he's got a more, much more interesting story than the fighter. And the guy said, well, he said, write it into, make an autobiographical book. If I, if the book is as exciting as you tell me it is, um, I'll have a screenplay written off of your book, based on the book, and I'll produce the movie. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, the mo more recent stuff that you've been in. I've been doing cameos, you know, that's what they call them, where you come in, you do one or two scenes and leave. You know, I did one with Billy Zane last year in a movie called V-Force, and it was really fun. I mean, these, these are fun things for me. And look, I'm not saying I'm not getting paid. They're, paying, they're overpaying me. I'm getting good money. But I enjoy it. You know, it's not like grueling work. Billy Zane's a great guy, by the way. I've met him two times before we worked together. And I met him at Sean Penn's house one time, and then on Corman's lot once. He was doing a movie for Roger Corman. And I went to his trailer and said, hi, real nice guy, real friendly guy. And I got to work with him in a movie last year. And, and it just, these things are fun for me. You know, I... I I um I don't look at them as, you know, grueling work. Even Showdown in Manila, you know, I had not been in Manila since I shot there. It was great. You know, we had the same crew, the same makeup artist that had I had in nineteen eighty eight did my movie for show did the movie uh makeup movie for me for Showdown in Manila in two thousand fifteen. Think about that. I worked with her in nineteen eighty eight. Now of course it took her a little longer to get me camera ready. I'm sure she put a little more makeup on me today than she had to back then. But yeah, I, they hired the same crew that I use.
Because the same company, you know, it's a, a guy named Serial Santiago owned the company, and now his son took over the company. He has actually passed away. That's a sad thing about the movie industry, is, but it's a sad thing about life in general, is the people that, you know, we have to say goodbye to our friends and family members if they die in front of, before us. And so many people I've worked with have passed away. My best friend was Chris Penn, and I was the last guy to talk to him. When he hung up the phone, he died that night. Everybody asked me, was he in a great mood? Because I was the lead pallbearer, and I said he was in a great mood because I had talked to a producer. Chris had wanted to do a Vietnam movie. He wrote the script. He wanted to direct it. And nobody would put the money up for it. But I got a producer who said he would green light it and, and pay for the movie. And I told Chris that night he was in a great mood, and he hung the phone up and died. Heart attack. He weighed 310 pounds. When I met him, he was like 168. So he literally got fat. Uh, basically, he did a lot of coke in the 80s. And, but he was not doing drugs when he died. What happened was when you're doing all that coke, and also he was an alcoholic, you know, it damages your heart. So he has a damaged, it enlarges it, from what I understand. So he had a damaged heart, and he put on all this weight from being an alcoholic and drinking and eating, overeating every night. And so now he's 310 pounds. Uh, he's got a weak heart. And uh, he had a cold, too, by the way. He had a, the flu, and his doctor gave him a codeine-based cough suppressant. And he supposedly drank some of that. So now that and, – and I know Chris. He doesn't take the measuring thing and measure it. He would just go – he'd just chug it, right. He would just take it and go, gong, 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 and say, yeah, I could get some sleep tonight. And, yeah, and, and so he he basically uh, over-medicated and he overstressed himself and was unhealthy. And, yeah, he died. He, he, did, he didn't make it to 50. I think he was, I think he was like 49. But anyway, he he he, gave, he was my mentor in the in the business as far as giving me advice. He used to tell me, he said, Don, when they offer you a lot of money, don't get excited. And I go, why? And he goes, that usually means it's a bad project. He goes, the more the right. In other words, the the more money they they they're offering more money because they it's the only way to get you to do the movie. You know, like the director's bad, the script's bad. It's going to be low budget. Yeah, he was my mentor in the business, and and I, you know, I can remember. He gets a script, and, and you, see, me and Charlie Sheen supported him. I can say this now. He's not embarrassed about this. He's, he's gone now. He, he, he kind of went through all his money, but I gave him cash to party with, and Charlie paid his bills because Charlie Sheen and him were best friends in high school. You know, they, they, they've known each other. They lived next to each other in, in Malibu, and you know, they, were, they were best friends. I met them both on the same day, and so we supported Chris. And uh, so he gets this script, and he goes, you know, I'm going to do this ultra-low-budget movie. It's going to be a piece of crap, man. So it's first-time director, and... But Harvey Keitel tells me if I do this movie, it'll show on a few film festivals. Maybe a director will see me and hire me. I'm just going to do this movie. Well, that was Reservoir Dogs. And right after Reservoir Dogs, it wins Sundance. I went to the screening of it here in L.A. But it wins Sundance. And then from then on, Chris was working because everybody saw it and said, hey, you know, Chris, he may be no longer a leading man type, but he's a good actor, talented actor. And they and they all started hiring me. And he, immediately, of all the people I loaned money to in Hollywood, Chris paid me immediately back. And I'm sure he paid Charlie back. And, um, yeah, he, he was uh, my best friend out here, my son's godfather. How has it been, because uh, you've done two films at least now with Michael Baumgarten. How is he to work with? You know, I love working with writer-directors. Of course, I'm Corman trained, so Corman loves them too, writer-directors. But because nobody knows the story better than the writer, right? I mean, he, the director wrote it. If his director, You don't have to say, well, what does the writer really think at this point? Do you really want this to happen or that? In other words, there's no struggle. And, you know, Michael also produces them. So he's involved in every way, and, and, and actually, I, I would say even he works in the distribution. So he's a one-man shopping kind of filmmaker. He writes the script, he directs it, casts it, directs it, produces it, helps raise the money, and distributes it, helps sell the movie, you know, uh, is involved in making the trailer and the poster artwork. and I mean, he just does it all. I mean, I, I love working with guys like that. I, it's, um, 
much easier. You know, if you're on a set and you have to rewrite something, some directors are not writers. You know, some of them, they just direct what's in front of them. They can't always come up with great ideas and things and change things. And, um, you know, uh, Roger Corman used to always teach us when you have a problem on a set and you can't do it the way you planned, you should not be trying to just get by. You should find a better way to do it than you planned on doing it. That's what the goal is. He said, try to do something innovative and change things and try to make it better than it would have been, even if you had had things the way you wanted. He said, that's your goal. Don't use it as an excuse that, well, you know, I only had X amount of days to shoot this film. That's why it doesn't look good. You know, don't ever start thinking that way. Cause that's a, it's a defeatist way to think, but you can't make high quality independent films if your attitude is you've already got excuses all lined up for why things don't look as good as they should. Right. It, it, it's a, uh, I, w- I would never advise a fighter to be insecure about whether he's going to win. I would tell people, always be positive you're going to beat, even if the guy's got a better record than you, and he's a great fighter, because everybody can be beat. The, the best fighter can still be beat. you just got to find the way to do it. you can find the right punch, the right kick, the right whatever. And when it comes to filmmaking, every problem you come up with has a solution of some kind. If you, your location that you planned was, well, I listen, I showed up on the set, I'm on the makeup t- table, and the director comes in with a long face. He's sad. He's going, Don, we got a big problem. The big, we're going to shoot the big shootout scene in this warehouse. And he goes, I've been told by the line producer that we don't have the right paperwork to, sh- we can't shoot one gun in here. In other words, I guess they have to have a fire marshal and all kinds of stuff to, to have a big gun battle in this warehouse. And, he, and I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm going to be on the makeup chair for about 20 more minutes. And I said, then you better have a new script for us to shoot today because we got to finish the movie. This is the last day. we got to come up with something. So basically what it turned out to be is he rewrote it so that it was like a cat and mouse chase. And then at the very end, it was a hand-to-hand combat thing between me and the bad guy. And there were no guns. The, the gun he, he wrote that out. He just rewrote the ending of the movie. And you know what? From... It looked lower budget. I mean, if you're looking for an action film, the ending is not kind of, it's not like Die Hard with a big gun battle or something. But if you're a martial arts fan, the end of Enter the Dragon, right, which is gross 100 million, there's no guns going off, right? There's no explosions. There's, there's no shootout. It's Bruce Lee fighting people. Well, that's what it ended up being for me. It ended up me being fighting people and then fighting the main bad guy in this big climactic battle. And uh, that turned out the audience loved it. The movie was a success and, and we shot it in, Probably, I can't guarantee it, but probably it was a better ending than the bigger budget-looking ending that the producer had planned so it looked like an action movie, not a martial art movie. You know, uh, he, he, maybe my audience, liked the ending better that we came up with in 15 minutes while I was on the makeup chair. I like writer-directors, and that's what Michael is. So he was able to do that at any point. If we had a problem, timing problem, like we, you know, the sun's going down so fast and we got to shoot the scene and we need to rewrite it or shorten it or... Mike could do that because he wrote the script and he knew the story and he knew what he felt was most important about each scene. I do prefer that and uh, like that about Michael and that he thinks on his feet and um, you know, I, I think he did a great job. You know, I, 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 the martial art kid, if you gave me three million more dollars, let's just say, say, say invested in the movie, I don't think it could make the movie any better. I don't think three million dollars would change anything. I don't think I need three million. You know, like what if I, well, you walked up to the, uh, Producer of uh, Dallas Buyers Club, he said, I got $3 million now. You can make the movie better. I don't see any way they can make it better because in the end, they thought that the candlelight looked better than the real. If they had the real lights, it wouldn't have looked as glowing. And in other words, they thought Jennifer Gardner looked better in the candlelight they used than they would have if they had the actual lights that they use in films. So 
that's what can occur when you have the writer, director, slash producer on the set every minute. And we did with, with Michael Bumgarten, you do. And um, yeah, that's that's a good feeling, and um, I like it. I prefer it. So, you know, if he's got another project, I'm, I'm very happy to look look it over and consider it again. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you online? Facebook. I'm on Facebook, just Don Wilson. And, you know, just become a follower. I've probably got over 20,000 followers. You, you know, there's only a, there's a limit to the friends. I've already reached that, the 5,000. But, but my page is so open, there's no difference between a follower and a friend. There, there's no difference. You know, the followers can still message me and followers can see all every, everything's open. They can see all the pictures and what, what, whatever friends can do, followers can do. And uh, my page is a open page, Don Wilson. And um, he has a picture of me holding a microphone. I think I was doing an interview for the Burbank International Film Festival in 2015. And that's the picture that's on it. So that if there's other other Don Wilson ones, there are probably like some fan ones. and There could be some Don the Dragon Wilson ones, which are also fans. Uh, sites, um, but uh, mine, Don Wilson, they can reach me there, and uh, yeah, I, lo- I like talking to people. I love social media. Well, Mr. Wilson, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific. Listen, like I said, you're doing me the favor, and, and I know I'm long-winded, and I've talked about everything under the sun. Well, you could probably write an autobiographical book on this conversation alone, but just edit it all out. Edit it down to the the, the, the little points, you know, to the little tidbits of um, uh, the conversation that you feel are most relevant to your audience, when they'd be more interested in it. Totally have faith that you'll, you'll do the right thing. Yeah.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.